Welcome to Group Text. We have an amazing, amazing guest today, Brian Darcy James. Now, let me just make sure I have this straight because this is ridiculous. You are currently able to be seen in West Side Story. Uh, the, your movie, The Cathedral, just got accepted to Sundance. You're in Where All the Light Tends to Go with Billy Bob Thornton that just finished shooting. You've just signed for Love and Death, which is produced by Nicole Kidman and David Kelly. And you are in Hawkeye. Correct. That's All true. That's ridiculous. <laughs> well, when you put it that way, it's kind of nice to see everything kind of stacked up like that. But as you know, you know, these things kind of take place over a, a course of time. But um, yeah, sometimes it all kind of comes to a head. And and it are it, it is kind of remarkable to hear that because it all comes comes out and you you realize, oh yeah, I've 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 had some some at bats lately. Yeah, it's feast or famine in this business. It sure is. It sure is. And one one thing that 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 isn't on that list, which which not not to kind of extend the uh, the, the bragging rights here, but uh, one thing that I am working on is uh, I'm producing a television show too for CBS. And excuse me, I have that later in my notes. <laughs> I have that later in my notes because later I know all about <laughs> it, and you're based on your hometown, and I have right, questions right. about bowling. Well, the only reason I bring it up, I mean, there are many reasons <laughs> to talk about it, but but. All those things that you mentioned and 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 the development of this television show, really, um, that that particular example was something that really took a while and kept me sane during the pandemic in terms of productivity or lack thereof or trying to find ways to to feel productive. And, you know, there was always a slow burn with the development of that show, which I was so grateful for, because even if there wasn't anything going on, like every two weeks, there'd be something to talk about. So I, it always gave me a little bit of a a lily pad to jump on and say, oh, I'm doing something. And lo and behold, now we're in full swing. And I appreciate that you used the word sane, which is very strange for anyone who is an actor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just saying. Yeah, well, I grew, fair enough, fair enough. I, I grew up in the business. Sane is a very unusual yes, word. You can, you can attempt to be sane. Let's put it that way. Or simulate. Simu uh, simulate sanity yeah. from time to time. Sure, sure. Whatever gets you through the night. Exactly. But before we even jump into all that stuff, uh, I do need a status report because Broadway seems to be a little bit or more than a little bit in flux right now. What what's happening? Well, I mean, you're you're. Your point of view is is the same as mine. I'm I'm watching this like everybody else who loves Broadway and just. Uh, I'm not in a show, obviously, so that's that's uh, a perspective that I don't have. But I do have a lot of friends that are working right now and and uh, following, you know, on Instagram or Twitter or just just reading the news and seeing what shows have been affected, what shows have had to close earlier than expected. You know, it's it's uh, these are trying, trying times for everybody. Let's be clear. Um, and this business of uh, commercial theater and Broadway is is definitely has not escaped that. Mm -mm. Um an interesting, an interesting thing that I read and have seen is that Mrs. Doubtfire, which is produced by a friend of mine, uh, Kevin McCollum, a great Broadway producer, mm -hmm. who's produced many, many different things. I haven't seen this, uh, this, this strategy yet. Uh, other than this show, they're stopping for about nine weeks so that they can kind of just keep their momentum going and not burn out with all of the 
the the wild roller coaster ride that we're on now in terms of um, this resurgence of of Omicron. So that's an interesting uh, sign of the times where where you know people have to think outside of the box to try to figure out how they can keep this their shows running. And not everybody has the luxury to to, mm-hmm. to kind of take nine weeks off and come back. So anyway, it's a long way of saying. The status report, I don't know. It's 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 it makes my stomach turn because it's these are people that I love and an industry that I love. And I'm hopeful, I'm definitely hopeful, but um I'm just holding my breath along with everybody else that we figure this out. Yeah, I was gonna say if it wasn't so awful, it would be a boon for uh for uh understudies. Yeah, well that's that's interesting you bring that up. I mean, I think I think um there was a bit of a misstep, you know, lately with the League of Broadway Producers, just in terms of uh, mischaracterizing. And, and uh, you know, to her credit, Charlotte St. Martin was quick to to uh, to kind of retract her statement about about understudies and and their their ability to kind of step in. Uh, but it did it did start a conversation and shine a light on uh, on uh, on the value of standbys and swings and understudies and mm-hmm. and just the lifeblood of, of the theater. And, you know, Hugh Jackman, uh, just as, as always kind of brilliantly summed up, you know, their, their presence in the Broadway world by saying they're the bedrock of our community. And he's absolutely right. At 100%, but I'm just going to pivot now to your life. Um, did you always want to sing and dance and act? You know, I think I did. And, you know, I, I don't think I knew that I wanted to do it professionally, but I always was drawn to it. Mm-hmm. Um, my grandmother was a uh, a flapper and she was really. A yeah, she she was a dancer and she loved to tap dance. And she always uh, she'd always I think she knew that I, I was interested in. She'd always make a point of of uh, watching the Lawrence Welk show and saying, hey, come come look at this. You know, the bubbles. So, yeah, the bubbles and the dancing and the singing. I mean, you look, I mean, that's that's a that's one way into the business. I yeah, suppose. and the one and the two. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a good old Lawrence Welk introduction to show business, you know, maybe not the way to introduce myself, but uh, it's the truth. And uh, but after that, you know, in high school, even a little bit before that, my sister Anne, a couple years older than me, she was always involved in the theater and, and she was just in love with the theater and would do these musicals. And I would just sit, you know, in the audience, just watching my older sister on stage in these shows and just, just kind of intoxicated by the whole idea of this other world that she was suddenly in. And how, how do, how do I get in there? Like what happened? How did, how did she walk out of the house today after school? And now why am I seeing her in this kind of like magical realm? You know, it was all very, very uh, alluring to me. So I, I always give her credit because she she was the she was the one that kind of paved the way in terms of my interest. We were always singing, 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 singing around the house and stuff. So um, it was always part of who I was. And um, the the long story short is that when I got to school, I studied the theater at Northwestern University. When I started acting classes, that's when I decided that's what I wanted to do professionally. I wanted to be a professional actor. What was your very first role? I'll tell you mine. I was what, the what? K. For kite in the kindergarten presentation. Oh wow, that's good. That's that's a that's a, a coveted role. In it, K yeah. for kite. Yeah. Everybody wanted to be the K. I bet. You know, <laughs> it's the first worked, one in. It is. It's like a it's a serious letter. <laughs> um, what was your first part? 
Oh boy. Well, I mean, it's funny. You mentioned kindergarten. I mean, I do remember this isn't a thing, this isn't a show, but I, I remember being in a, uh, a spring music concert and I was always really small. And so I was always kind of like at the end of the line, you know how they, they line the kids up kind of according to height to have good looking rows, you know, on the dais for, for the performances. The risers. The risers, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And I was always on the end because I was, you know, I was the little guy in the end. And, and, and in this case, the, both me and the other girl who was, uh, who was you know, small as well, it was a song. I don't even know what song it was. All I know it was about a rocket ship and they had two <laughs> rocket ships with the, with the hole cut out. And yeah. you had, I had to stick my face through and she had to stick her face through and it was part of the gag of the, the thing. And she was just like fully committed head through, <laughs> just like, like really into it. I was mortified. I did not want to have my head come out of that thing. It was, it was terrifying and just embarrassing. I, I, <laughs> I, I didn't want to do it. So I don't know. That's the kind of inner turmoil that I've, I've experienced since, since that day in my professional life, I think. Um, you mentioned that your uh, major was theater. So it was money well spent by your parents. Yes. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm so grateful. I'm so incredibly grateful for the education that I received and the money that it costs to get that, that diploma. I mean, look, it's, it's, there are many, many different ways to, to uh, learn how to act and to, uh, to learn the craft of acting. And, um, I was, I loved uh, my, my college years because it was a, it was a great kind of combination of uh, kind of like a, like an all encompassing, you know, if you wanted it to be all theater, you could make it so, or you could actually just get a good old, uh, you know, liberal arts co- uh, education as mm-hmm. well and be in college. And, and I had a great combination of those two things. So I, I really loved, I really loved that experience. What gave so, you, as I say, what gave you the courage to go to New York? Well, I'll tell you, I mean, honestly, um, th- this is, this is, you know, I don't want to sound morose, but my father died in 1990 when I graduated from college. And it was uh, obviously a pivotal moment for everybody in our family. And, uh, I think I was, I think I was filled with a little bit of carpe diem in, in that moment of just realizing, you know, I, I, life is short and, and, you know, all the fears that I had about moving f- into, you know, a, a huge city I knew nothing about into an industry with, you know, the, the giant maw of, of that, that, that industry kind of turning its wheels. I didn't know, I didn't know what to do. And, and in the wake of my father's passing away, I think I just felt like, well, now or never, you know, might as well. And um, so that's kind of what motivated me in a personal sense um, in a professional sense, I had started my professional career while I was at school in Chicago. Chicago is an incredible theater town. And um, I was lucky enough to participate in it, in it professionally starting my junior year. And so I had a, I had a sense of, of what it meant to be a professional actor. I had that experience. I had a little bit of confidence in just knowing the ropes of what it meant to be, you know, in an equity production and, you know, 10 minute breaks, all of those things that come with being a professional that you never, ever experienced until you actually do it. Um, I had that in my pocket. So that also was, was, uh, gave me some fuel as well to kind of say, well, I, I have a little bit of an understanding of how this works. So I might as well go try in a place where I think, um, you know, most of it is happening. What part got you your equity card? <laughs> <laughs> 
I always find this fascinating with uh, theater actors. They always remember what got them their equity oh, card. Well, this is unforgettable for me. Again, it's Northwestern. And so I credit uh, um, a professor of mine, Dominic Massimi, who at Northwestern directed a production of Hair. Um, and I played Claude in this Northwestern production of Hair. I was a sophomore in college. And it just so happens that Michael Butler, the original producer of the Broadway musical Hair, lives or lived in, I don't know if he still does, I, uh, I don't even know. I wonder if Michael is still with us. I hope he is. But at, at any rate, Michael lived in Oak Brook, Illinois, was invited to see this production and was inspired to basically recreate Dominic's uh, production at Northwestern in a professional setting for the 20th anniversary production of Hair in Chicago. And um, I was given the chance to audition with everybody else, re-audition. And I got the same part and got my equity card and did this incredible production of hair in a place called uh, Clubland, which is now it's the old Vic. It's the Vic Theater, not the old Vic. It's the Vic Theater uh, just off of Belmont, Chicago. At that time, it was a it was a dance club. And it was this weird thing where we would do the show. And then after the show, the club would open up. So we would share our dressing room with, with the Clubland dancers. I mean, it was like it was like showbiz, like galore. Um, so that was a wild and an amazing time. But yeah, that was that's a long story too about about my first equity, uh, my car, getting my car with that show. Isn't it funny how everybody remembers those kind of pivotal things and the funny parts of it much more than necessarily the bad stuff? Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, it's such a uh, it's such a threshold to cross, you know. If, if anyone's interested in being a professional and then joining a union and understanding what that means, and yeah, I and mean, of course, it's something you'll never forget. What was the worst audition you ever had? <laughs> I've had many. Um, we all have. By the way, we all no, have. I know. I'm just so when you say that, I'm just like cataloging through my head. The worst one. Well. <laughs> this is, this is, I'll try to be, I'll try to be short with this, but it is a good story. So if you, if you indulge me, I'll tell you, I'll tell you the worst, the worst audition I had. The floor is yours. I had an audition. Well, no, I, I didn't have an audition. I was asked to come in audition for a Robert Wilson opera. Uh, I think it was called the midnight rider, something like that. And I, I don't remember what it was. It was being cast out of San Francisco. They were going to do it in San Francisco and they were going to do it in Germany, I think. It was a, it was a dual production out of town. And at that time, my, my daughter was just born. I couldn't, I couldn't entertain going out, out of town or to Germany, let, let alone, you know, to Secaucus. So I, I, I was not going to go anywhere. And they said, just come in, just come in. Robert just wants to meet the people in New York. And anyway, long, long story short is that I realized that very quickly, oh no, this, this is an audition and they, they've got me in the room. And so while you're here, I might as well do something. Um, there's a lot that precedes the, the audition part, which was, was mesmerizing and, and mystifying. If you know, Robert Wilson at all, he was, he's, he's quite a character and he's, he's a true artist. And, um, I, I was just hanging on for dear life with the conversation that we were having about, about art and uh, and when it came time to that, I realized I'd kind of been kind of hoodwinked a little bit into this audition. I was so mad because I knew there was no chance of me doing this. And at this point, I was like, I not only is there no chance, I do not want to do this at all. 
So they said, well, why don't you audition something for us? And Mr. Wilson stepped out into the hallway. And uh, uh, I, I thought, well, I know exactly what I'm going to do. And I, I, they said, would you like an accompanist? And I said, no, I think I can do this acapella. And so I sang, uh, <laughs> I sang um, a song from, from Hee Haw. Uh, <laughs> that was on television in the 70s. <laughs> which basically is it's two guys lamenting the loss of their love where they sing, where, oh, where are you tonight? Why did you leave me here all alone? I searched the world over and thought I found true love. You met another and pfft, you were gone. <laughs> so I, I really wanted to accentuate the last, last part of that song just to kind of drive my point home. So I launched into the verse again and, and gave the raspberry an extra, extra couple of beats. Um, but it was, it was bizarre and strange and i just it's if it's not the worst it's definitely the most memorable and um um i don't think i've ever told that story in public so i, I do want to say that my appreciation for robert wilson has not waned um i i have come to appreciate the genius of that man um but i wasn't ready to audition for him that day <laughs> uh, when i auditioned for grad school i auditioned for yale nyu and juilliard and I, not a good singer. So my only option, you're going to appreciate this, was the Oscar Mayer baloney song. <laughs> Perfect. And I, you know, and everyone's out in the hallway, oh, and you can hear everyone through the doors. Oh, and I'm like, my baloney has a first name. But I mean, I sold it. Yeah. I sold it. And the only one that didn't call me back was Juilliard. Not shocking. <laughs> well, you know, there's something to be said about the simplicity of a song. And, and regardless of your ability to sing, um, it's always vulnerable. It's, it's, it, it's probably the most vulnerable, vulnerable thing you can do is to stand in front of people and sing. Yeah. And I think, that, I think that even with a song like that, anybody worth their salt is going to be able to recognize you know, commitment and dedication and personality and, and ability to convey something. And I'm not, I'm not saying that to kind of make you feel better about that audition. I, actually, I, I think that's true. I think that's really, really true. Uh, because that is a, you know, you're, you're basically standing there raw and, and, you know, it's not easy. That's very, very kind of you. I no, wish you had not. been one of the evaluators at Juilliard. <laughs> At right. least at NYU and Yale, they kind of got it. Juilliard, <laughs> the people's faces just went white. <laughs> they didn't get it, clearly. And, and they, they put up the it. list for a call. I'm like, nah, I'm not, yeah. this isn't yeah. going to be me. Not the hot dog girl. Not the hot dog girl. <laughs> but I thought it was creative. Uh, but you bring up an, an interesting point about in musicals being raw. Because you've done drama, comedy, musicals, both drama and comedy. What's the most challenging I hear a lot of people say musicals are more difficult, again, because you're so raw, where more with straight plays you get sort of in the rhythm and can close out all the excess noise. Yeah, I think that's true. I think musicals have uh, a, a, an added layer of uh, technique, you know, for lack of better description. I mean, that's really what it is, is the protecting your voice and having to kind of all constantly worry about where it is that day and what's affecting it. And, do, you know, did you, did you, you know, use it too much during the day? Were you on the phone too much or do you have a cold? Those are things that aren't as um, 
that don't show up as readily during a play, you can probably power through those things a little bit more without people noticing as much. Um, so, you know, they talk about, you know, it's, it's been said that if you're in a musical, you kind of have to live like a monk because there's so much protection you have to do uh, to employ in order to, you know, preserve your actual physical voice for, for your job. So I would think doing a musical, a long running musical is probably the most challenging thing to do. Uh, you know, the great Ethel Merman story, don't you? Which one? Oh, where someone said to her, how do you, how do you warm up your voice? And she turned around and said, I clear my throat. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the one, the, the, the Ethel Merman story I know is, is someone saying, you know, Ethel, you're on. And she says, how am I doing? <laughs> yeah. I also heard right before they say, Ethel, you're on. She would take the gum out of her mouth, stick it on the wall and walk out. Oh, that's perfect. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Uh, no fuss about her. Uh-uh. You've had so many amazing co-stars on Broadway, on TV, in movies. Who's been the most intimidating? to work with where you went, holy shit. Uh, um, uh, well, intimidating, not in personal stature in terms of how they behaved or how, the vibe they, they gave. Uh, intimidating to me because of my awe and appreciation for this. When I did Spotlight, um, working with Michael Keaton was, was, a, was a, great, um, a great moment in the sense that, that I, I, I was relieved of my, my intimidation very quickly because he is such a... Um, a, such a uh, great guy. I mean, just He's a great, great guy. guy. Like instantly like with you and normal and just kind of gets all that stuff out of the way. And uh, so uh, there was one really pivotal moment early on in the shooting of that film where it's one thing to rehearse and to get to, to kind of go over things. But then when the cameras are rolling and you're actually doing the thing and, you know, I was, I was constantly for the first couple of weeks trying to make sure that they hadn't made a mistake. You know, like, are you sure that, you wanted me is that are you sure about that and uh once i kind of convinced myself that I, I i belonged there um i had a scene with michael and it was just he and i and we did a couple of takes and you know after you know the first take he just gave me like a double thumbs up from across the desk and you know it meant it meant the world to me because you know not that i needed his his um his endorsement but it certainly helped me feel like I was part of the team and that, you know, getting, getting the endorsement meant, meant a great deal. So, so yeah, it's an interesting thing. You know, I'm sure you've experienced this many times, you know, the, you have a picture of someone, you, you revere someone, you've spent your life kind of consuming their work and, and just kind of dazzled by what they do. And then all of a sudden you're, you're either working with them or talking to them and, you know, you have a chance to kind of either, let that stop you or let that be, uh, you know, you know, are they, are they generous enough to kind of invite you into their world and just say, Hey, we're all doing this together. And that was the case with him. Spotlight was a brilliant movie. Thank you. I, yeah. I totally agree. But that double thumbs up, it's like, it almost lets you take a deep breath. Yeah. Like I'm doing okay. Yeah. And it allows you, it allows you to just exactly not only say that you're doing okay, but just, it gives you a chance to do your work and right. not have that, that extra kind of chorus of people that are, you know, circling around your head saying, you know, oh, that wasn't great. Or, you know, just all of the, all of the things that can get in your own way. It was just a nice way to kind of just blow that smoke away and just get to work. Um, a little bit more about Broadway, because I think people or kind of know now how movies and TV is made, but I think Broadway is still kind of a mystery. As my mother always said, you walk into a Broadway theater, you walk on that stage, it's your church. Yeah. There's yeah. nothing like, and I even know from a kid, stepping out on that proscenium, you go, 
whoa, it's just a whole different vibe. What goes into, I'm going to talk about musicals because what, how people don't know what the process is for a big musical. And you have been in, by the way, one of my favorites ever, Something Rotten. Oh, thank you very much. Hilarious and so inside. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah, thank you. Was amazing. But what goes tell people explain to them what goes into the process of getting a big musical on its feet. Well, there there are three phases basically. The first phase is a 6-week rehearsal process. And that's that's typical for any show. Broadway musicals usually maybe have one more week of production. And so and mind you, that 6 weeks is preceded by all kinds of pre-production by the choreographer, the dancer, or the uh, the director, um, the the designers. Um, they're creating sets, so you know all that stuff is going on prior to your six week rehearsal. Uh, all timed to kind of get to the point where you're moving out of the rehearsal room into the theater, which is always a huge shot in the arm because for six weeks you're just doing it in a room with tape on the ground, kind of giving you a mock version of what the sets will be literally no dimension to it. Sometimes like a rolling cart or things to represent things that will ultimately be there. But um, it's like you go from a two-dimensional world into a three-dimensional world in the theater. And that begins what's called the, the tech process. The tech process is usually a week, week and a half, where you're moving at a snail's pace to basically have the, the communion of of the technical aspects, the lighting and the sound design to marry with the all the work that you've done to kind of create these characters and how the show flows, that takes a while to kind of stop and start to make sure everything is lit properly. And then the third, third phase is the, is the preview process. And that can be the most um, daunting in a way while you're super excited that you're, you're up and running. The preview process is when you learn the most about what's working and what isn't because you ult- you have the ultimate arbiter with you. You have the audience to say like, yeah, I don't like that. Or we're not responding to that. Or this works really well. And that's when it gets super challenging because you're spending the days basically rehearsing changes to the show that oftentimes will go in that night. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember, um, you know, during Titanic, which was rife with all kinds of issues in terms of the technical aspects and, and the storytelling. We had a moment where we, we basically redesigned the, uh, the ending and uh, because you, you don't have any time to, to, to do things uh well in other words we 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 put the sh- we put the staging in that very night yeah with nothing but a piano accompaniment because you, you have to take time to orchestrate it and so you had this full show with beautiful jonathan tunic arrangements and then all of a sudden you had this ending with a piano score under this very dramatic moment which uh, strangely was was it worked it, it satisfied the, the the needs of the story but anyway that's just an example of how all the things you'd work for now, you know, two months or so that, that are kind of in your blood and in your brain can just be thrown out the window and you have to rehearse something else and kind of insert it that night. And oftentimes you're doing scenes with new, new words and new songs with new lyrics. And that, that's, that's when it gets a little batty. So once you pass the, the preview process, you, you open and um, you, you know, ultimately what they call you freeze the show and you're done with making the changes and the show is what it is. And, then you're off and running. And then that's just to kind of see where it goes from there. Which takes you to reviews. Have you ever gotten a bad review? Yes. What yeah. was your worst review? 
Uh, let's see. Uh, usually just kind of like, uh, the, re- the review of like bland, you know, the blandness, nothing, nothing like scorched earth in terms of, <laughs> of, of my performance, but just kind of dismissive of it being kind of un- uninteresting, you know, or, uh, or not worthy of comment. Um, uh, Ooh, I do remember that's, one- that's cold. It is. It is. It, that's cold. The that's the worst kind. Cause you think like, Oh, come on. Come on, really? Something. At least I tell me that. I sucked. Exactly. So you at least noticed yeah. me. Yeah, it's like it's like it's like the equivalent of like, oh yeah, she's really she's really nice. She's nice. You know, it's like what? What does nice mean? <laughs> yeah, it not offensive. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, you got to work this past what was it two years ago with Spielberg? How? Yeah. What? an amazing experience and on a big production. What was, what was it like walking into such a rarefied environment? Well, I'm, I'm going to kind of bring up that Michael Keaton example of a person who is, who understands what they bring into the room and is so deft at just kind of um, disarming you with any kind of notion you, you have of them being kind of bigger or better than they are. Uh, Steven Spielberg is a true collaborator. He is a kind, generous, thoughtful person. He's a warm guy. So um, when I when I started West Side Story, the first thing he said to me, he said, "This is the fourth time we've worked together." And and I, I knew uh, he he was the executive producer of Smash, a show that I was on. Yeah, never worked with him per se on the ground with with him in that capacity, but he was also one of the you know people that was involved with Shrek in a very, you know, foundational level and was, you know, kind of stuck his head. And I had met him during that process. And he was also a producer of a film that he did called The First Man. I didn't have any interaction with him. But the fact that he even knew that I was in that movie um, really was just, it was just stunning. So so that's an example of how, how he leads. You know, that's his introduction to you saying, hey, we're doing this. Isn't it great? You know, and... He, he's the kind of person that allows for every person to get their best work done just by, um, by imbuing upon them the, the sense of purpose that we, and the seriousness of the purpose because he's serious about the things that he creates and he expects everyone else to be. And, and why wouldn't they be? Why wouldn't they be? Uh, but having a sense of that, having a sense of purpose, I think is, and communicating that is really something special that allows people to be single-minded about the pursuit, which oftentimes I think can make a difference in, in, you know, something as ethereal as a, 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 a work of art become something that is more dynamic than possibly it might not be. So anyway, he, he, he has that gift of doing that. And on top of that, he's just an amazing technician and, and just, he's, he's the best. Yeah. What a privilege. A true privilege. Yeah. I read something, two things actually I found online um, that you, and I'm, tell me if I got this wrong, that you basically played Krupke as if it was someone who always had an ulcer. Well, that was, that was Steven. Uh, oh, really? It was. There was one of the first scenes we shot was the, was the, um, when anybody's is escaping the the precinct and she, and, and they, they kind of, they elbow me in the, in the gut. And, uh, and I, and Steven said, Hey, why don't you say, oh, my ulcer? <laughs> it wasn't in the script. <laughs> and uh, and, and at, at that point, we kind of talked about it, and he, he described Krupke as being duodenal, duodenally challenged. 
<laughs> that's perfect. It's perfect. So it's from perfect. On, I would just kind of play to this guy with a, a just a constant pain, uh, exacerbated by this uh, this 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 ta- this this never successful task of trying to keep the peace. And you know, I, I do want to say that, like I, I I've always, you know, Krupke obviously is is one small thread in this thing. But I'm so I was so happy and proud to to be in that mix and just be in that movie. It's such a gorgeous movie. But I always felt that Krupke was a guy that was probably had six young kids at home, constantly trying to kind of direct traffic and keep things, keep the peace and just just always kind of just missing the mark and just constantly just really annoyed by not being able to succeed at trying to do the right thing and trying to make peace and trying to make everybody get along and just be be in a, co- a cohesive thing. Um, clearly, he's uh, he's not doing doing very well. Uh, but he's trying. The other thing I found online and that I definitely want to talk about, uh, how we roll. Um, I also found out that you started a tradition, uh, within the Hamilton cast. (laughs) Yeah. And I actually, did you know that there is a video of this on YouTube? I did know that I I did know one that I'm involved in. My, my, my goal was, is that, you know, thinking this would be something that would have many, many iterations, which of course it has. Um, and just for listeners who, who don't know what we're talking about, the, the, the idea I had was basically passing, instead of passing the torch to the next king, replacing a torch with a literal garter uh, that, that King George wear. It's called the Order of the Garter. Yes. It's a, it's a real It's a real thing. thing. It's a real thing. And I thought that would be kind of funny to kind of like on a, on a wedding night, you know, placing a garter on, on, uh, on your betrothed leg. The same would be true of kind of one king to another, putting on a garter to kind of pass on the uh, the rite of passage in a way. And uh, yeah, it, I, I wrote a whole little script. Oh, and, uh, um, it was it was extensive and a whole thing <laughs> yes, from yeah. I was the first, but never on Broadway. But I'm really the third, but I'm passing yeah. it to the fifth who's come back yeah. for the second time. Yeah. It's hilarious. Uh, yeah, it's it's fun. It's a, it, it all it all ends with you know my my dream is that that. Um, I, I love Sia, the artist Sia, and there's a song that she has called Electric Bird. And, and there's this great kind of like um, kind of coronation like trumpet uh, horn line at the end of it. And, the you know, in the film version of this of this tradition, <laughs> it all ends with this this long procession of kings with that with Electric Bird, the end of Electric Bird playing while uh, the new King George is, is uh, ordained. It's hilarious. Tell me about uh, how we roll, which is. The se- which is the new title. Right. Uh, it was formerly called Smallwood, which is the name of the professional bowler on which this, this story take, is, is based on. And Tom Smallwood is a pro bowler from my hometown of Saginaw, Michigan. And um, his story is that for 10 years, he worked at General Motors, like so many people that I knew growing up in Saginaw. We had the steering gear division. That was our claim to fame, making steering gears for, uh, for General Motors cars. And uh, he worked. Uh, he worked in Pontiac, I think, putting uh, uh, safety um, safety belt, um, just kind of applying them into uh, Chevy uh, Silverados or something like that. But he did that for ten years and then got laid off on Christmas Eve, as the story goes, and came home and told his wife that he was going to make everything okay by becoming a professional bowler. <laughs> and uh, she says uh, to him, "Well, that's crazy, but I love you, so go ahead and do it." I'll give you a year and then we'll reassess. And in that time, he won the PBA championship, 
within that year. So it's a great story of a, of a guy following his dream. And uh, it's now a, a CBS sitcom starring Pete Holmes. And uh, who's fantastic. Uh, Pete Holmes is hilarious. Uh, I, I think the world of him, he's such a, he's such a great person. He's got a brilliant mind. He's, he's, he's obviously very, very funny. If you've seen his stand up, you understand that. And uh, he's a great actor. He's, he was on a show called crashing, which was a, uh, produced by Judd Apatow on HBO about uh, the life of a stand-up. I think loosely based on his own experiences and yep. his life. Um, he's just a, a winning, winning guy, and he's he's brilliant in this. And so, um, I ca- I can't believe that that I'm talking to you about this because I, I've I've tried many times and had had you know have tried producing and getting rights to stories that I thought would be interesting and push the ball up the hill. Uh, to varying degrees of success, this by far is is the most um, you know the most road I've traveled, and it's super exciting, super exciting because it's um, it's a really a dream come true to be able to kind of have a story and want to tell a story, and then finding a partner in this case uh, a, a broadcast <laughs> system called CBS that is willing to to you know to play along and and, and help make it come true. So. It's pretty exciting. If you could play one of your parts over again. Oh. For fun. Uh-huh. Which would it be? When you said for fun, this is what immediately came to my mind. Dirty Rotten Scoundrels oh. was a, a show that I did. Norbert Leo Butts played the role and won the Tony for it. And and John Lithgow, he and John Lithgow played the, the, the con men. And um, I, I, I don't think I've ever had as much fun on stage than I did doing that show. And, uh, you know, I did it with Keith Carradine and, and, and oh. you know, when you're, when you're put into something, you're basically, you, you basically have to keep the, you have to keep the house, you know, up and do all the proper kind of foundational things you have to keep in line. But, you know, David Yazbek scored his wit and, uh, you know, the, the, the book of it, it was just all so ridiculous and, uh, Jack O'Brien directed it. It was, it, it was, it was fantastic. And I got to play physical comedy uh, on a Broadway stage that I hadn't really had a chance to do before. And, and it, it was short lived because I didn't, I didn't, we didn't get a chance to run as long as we had hoped. And I honestly, I, I that was so much fun to do. Uh, and I, I'd love to be able to go back and kind of tease that out a little bit. Um, you've been nominated for countless awards. Um, who has the best swag bag? <laughs> God, I couldn't even answer that question because uh, it usually is just a bag full of moisturizer, isn't it? But is- uh, come on, back in the day, back in the '90s, they were good. They were God, really I, good. I, I mean, I, I know I still know my favorite thing out of a swag bag after all these years. I'll tell you one thing that I, I remember. Um, it was for the Tony Awards, actually. Um, I think I was a presenter. Um, maybe, maybe I was participating at, at any rate, wh- for whatever reason I had a, re- I had a, they allowed me to go into the gifting suite. Right. Mm-hmm. And this is something that my wife and I talk about a lot. They had an, uh, I think LG, is that the brand? An yeah. LG, um, dish, uh, not dishwasher, uh, washer and dryer. Like you could get a washer and dryer. And, and at that point we, you know, we, we lived in an apartment and, there's who has a, a washing machine in their apartment? No one. So we I was, we were both lamenting the fact that we couldn't just walk out just carrying a big washing machine, but it, had that happened, that would have been the, the best. 
By the way, they did that one year at the Grammys. <laughs> and you should have seen people could, I mean, were running for the washing machines and getting them for like their parents. Yeah. Getting them. I mean, if people don't realize that's like the good stuff I got from the ESPYs one year, um, there used to be a thing called Jamba Juice, which is like sure. robot. Okay. They put in literally a stack of Jamba Juice cards, like free juices. But I'm telling you, it was like one, it was like 300 of them. Wow. One Best of the year. Ever. Wow. Wow. Best ever. Because this is stuff you can use, like a washing machine. Yeah. No, that, that kind of blew my mind. It, it is a wild, it is a wild aspect of the, uh, the, of the business, isn't it? Exactly. But then they had to get rid of it because everyone sort of found out and they started, you were starting to have to pay tax on them. Oh, really? Okay. It's a good thing I didn't get that washing machine. No, but that was back then. There there was a whole thing where some celebrity said like the value of it or it got out and the government came in and said, no, 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 no. You don't get $10,000 worth of stuff (laughs) and not have to pay taxes on it. Um, In all this free time that you have, clearly, because you're lazy and don't do anything, uh, what's next? (laughs) And when does the show air? The show airs March 31st. Um, I'm not exactly sure of the timing yet, uh, what time exactly, but March 31st is when we air. And um, what's next? You know, um, I, I don't know. I really don't know. I mean, my, my focus right now is this show and producing the show and, and uh, learning how to be a producer and doing my job that, that is helpful and, you know, gets the thing, you know, across the finish line. So that's requiring me to go to LA quite a bit. I'm, I'm in New York and, uh, so I'm here for the break, but I'm eager to get back out there and, and uh, kind of get back into the mix as we finish it up. And, um, and then Love and Death takes me, takes me to Texas to, to finish and act in that. So that's really it. You know, like every actor, you're kind of like when the job ends, you're kind of looking at the next thing saying, OK, what what is it? And I don't know what that is. I, I honestly don't know. I'm working on a couple of ideas that uh, that that I'm, I'm I want to write and produce and, you know, continue in this. Uh, in this capacity and, and try to get things off the ground. I, I I'm really energized by that. So there are two things that I'm talking, that I'm working on that are, that are in that world. Um, and so that's, that, that keeps my mind going. Um, so that's, that's basically all you have when you're not actually doing a show. So that's kind of how I'm trying to use my head. Brian, you are amazing. Everyone needs to look March 31st for how we roll. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.